You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole, and I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me as she is pretty much every single week, the one, the only, Christy Morris. Christy, how are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? I am, you know what, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I found that we we normally record on Mondays, and uh, we're recording on a Monday, and you know what's strange is that most Mondays seem to go by very quickly, which I'm always really thankful for because the sooner Monday's over, usually the better. And that usually means it's time for the 602 Club night, which by the time Monday's over, I, f- I want to be in the 602 Club having a drink. So <laughs> Seriously, I'm with you on that. Uh, and back with us because we are going to be continuing the Rambo series with the penultimate film in the series, Just Called Rambo. And the man who could be by Rambo's side, John Mills. I'm not saying that I'm philosophically aligned with Rambo, but I'm also not not saying that. So we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna suss that out during uh, the show here. So thank you for having me back. I'm just surprised that they didn't have you play Graham McTavish's role in this. I mean, you guys look very similar. Very, very much similar. Very similar. But uh, you know, the thing is, mm-hmm. I was unavailable at the time because they were uh, doing mocap to map my body over uh, Ben Affleck in preparation for Batman v Superman uh, th- because right, I, I did my right. workout routine and they, they mo-capped it so that they right. could put his face yes. over it. So, yeah, yes. You know. Yeah, of course. Of I'm course, highly you know, in demand ben that just, way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Nice. Man, stars all over the place want to have your body. But anyway, uh, before we go down that road too far, uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, please, you know, give us a star rating review. Help people find the show. It really does help the show continue to grow. It's been a while since we've got a review. We re- we read those reviews here out on the show. But honestly, we're wherever you get your podcast, so you can just subscribe and you make sure that you get the show as soon as it drops. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at the 602 Club and we on Instagram at 602 Club TFM. So please follow us in both places. We love interacting with you there. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash track FM. We've got the listeners only discussion group, the Babel Conference there. You can join and talk to listeners from all over the world. We'd love to have that happen and we love talking about uh, the shows that we do with everyone and then of course you can find trek.fm which you can go to the contact section if you want to send us an email you can do that as well and a huge thank you we've got our associate producers through patreon ken trip davis grayson ryan millett and daniel noah so appreciate these guys supporting the network and the show each and every week and making sure that everything we do here comes to you and if you want to make sure that all of this comes to you ad free every week make sure you go over to patreon.com slash Trek FM and see how you can be part of our team. Every little bit helps. And again, that is patreon.com slash Trek FM. So guys, this one uh, has a very, I would say very interesting behind the scenes because it's quite a while for Rambo three. till we get to Rambo 
which makes a lot of sense after what we saw with Rambo 3, that it would take a while. And one of the big things is that the Rambo franchise was actually sold to Miramax in 1997, uh, and then the rights were sold to New Image and Millennium Films in 2005, who greenlit this film before the release of Rocky Balboa. So they were banking on bringing him back uh, and and Rambo back, which I thought was really, really interesting. Uh, But even before, you know, the last quote-unquote Rocky film was going to come out as well. So in many ways, it does almost seem like that Sylvester Stallone was kind of interested in kind of bringing his two massive franchises kind of to a close here. And so I'm I'm interested for for you John, you know, obviously being the big Rambo fan, your big Rocky fan as well. Um even though after Rocky 5, I'm not sure how anybody could be a Rocky fan. Mm, um yeah. and so what were you feeling at this point when you started did you start to hear the rumors, yeah. the fact that we were going to be bringing Rambo back and and how did you feel especially since I mean legitimately Rambo 3 was what in 89 no, it was before eighty nine. Was it? Was yeah. it? Was, uh, was it? Yeah. We should know off the top of our heads, uh, but I it, can't it, remember it, off the top yeah, of my it hand. Was, but it was late eighties. It, it, yeah. it was a legitimate long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a very long time. I remember uh, the first. The first thing I read was like a rumor that Stallone was shopping around the idea, and I was highly skeptical. I, I said, "Yeah, sure, sure. He's shopping around the idea, whatever." But what's interesting is I, I did eventually get quasi excited for it it was really harder just to draw the comparison because you mentioned rocky balboa right i was way more excited for rocky balboa because that was i i could clearly see that as a long-awaited apology for rocky five like i was ready to forgive him by that point um (laughs) with rambo there was really this sense of after rambo three was it wasn't that it wasn't just that Rambo 3 wasn't a great movie. It's that it really felt like the franchise had just lost its steam and its reason for existence. Yeah. That Rambo belonged yeah. to an a bygone era. And so yeah. I wasn't particularly excited for Rambo, but I was excited enough to pay attention. Now, the thing is, by the time it comes out, uh, you know, I'm at a different stage in my life and um you know we're 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 looking at starting a family and everything like that so rambo wasn't quite enough to get me into the theater uh to go see it um but i remember hearing all of the uh the, you know there was a lot of hullabaloo about how graphic it was and stuff like that which made me intrigued because i remembered the controversy over First Blood Part Two, and and that being so graphic and everything, and I said, "Oh, okay, well, that's kind of interesting, at the very least." So eventually, I did get to see it. But what what I'm really sort of fixating on here is, it, I, I I think there's there have to be other people that have sort of explored this in the past and stuff like that. So there's no way this is an original thought on my part. But if you really think about it, with the timing of this. It's almost as if Sylvester Stallone proved that there was a market for old franchises coming back because this predates Star Trek 09. This predates The Force Awakens. This predates a lot of things. And now we're sort of in reboot hell. And I, I think that 
Rambo and Rocky wind up proving that there was a market to be had to bring back these nostalgic franchises and give them one last go at the very least. Yeah, That's I mean, I, I think you're right. And and Christy, on that, one of the things that Stallone and one of the things that took so long was the fact that Stallone just didn't feel like they could come up with a compelling idea to bring him back. And that any of the ideas they were coming up with just kind of lacked, as John mentioned, this kind of essence of what the character is and like almost its reason for existence. And um, so as you kind of look at where the story ends up going, do you do you feel like in, in some ways that this movie does legitimize the fact that they bring Rambo back and put out another movie after 20 years? I mean, it, I looked it up, John. It was 1988, so it's literally 20 years later that you bring out another Rambo film. So how do you feel about that, Chris? Do you feel like we found a story that kind of made more sense for this character to kind of return with. Yeah, I do. And the reason why is that, you know, I know that we mentioned it felt originally like it was trying to go back to a bygone era and then maybe it just needed to stay that way. But I want to challenge that and say Mm -hmm. maybe what Stallone ended up doing with Rambo that wasn't originally the plan was making it timely related to whatever military issues are going on the time that the movie is coming out. Mm -hmm. So initially it was closer, you know, the original first blood closer to the time that Vietnam had happened. And then, you know, two and three kind of in the midst of some other conflict that was similar to what was going on in the movie. So I think then coming out with Rambo and having it revolve in particular around the situation with Burma, it ends up being, perfect timeliness to cause a commentary on a serious problem. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. Good point. Yep. So, well, and, that's and my I take was going to ask both of you because in, in many ways, then what you kind of end up doing is, is the kind of thing that the bond movies try to do, which is have some sort of like timeliness to the situation at hand and then use that as a way to kind of wrap a fantastical story around Whereas this, I, I like your idea, Christy, that when Rambo's at his best, he's telling a very grounded, gritty, real story and bringing light to something that you might not necessarily see, right? Like the plight of, you know, uh, men coming back from Vietnam, uh, the plight of people being left over in Vietnam, you know, uh, as ridiculous as it is, the the plight of what's going on in Afghanistan. Now, I think we can all agree uh, unfortunately, Ra- Rambo three, the um, deft with which that is handled is not so great. And yet I would say that what makes this so fascinating is that when they cast um, Kin as the um, wonderfully terrible, I mean, he's just horrendously terrible uh, commander of the militia or ar- the military army. He actually was a former Karen Freedom fighter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he knew that his family could be incarcerated in Burma because of his role here. And yet he felt like this would help bring awareness to what was happening in that area of the world. And so it really does feel like and it's almost like Stallone had learned the lesson from Rocky three, where you really don't deal with the subject in a, in a, a well thought out manner and that this had has a lot more thought put into 
at least how it's portraying the situation at hand. Uh, what, what's interesting, too, is, of course, there's no novelization of this, uh, but in the forward to the novelization of Rambo 3, David Morrell, you know, he discussed with Stallone just the idea that that Rambo was going to be coming back. And he shared that Stallone said to him in in acknowledgement of what had gone wrong with Rambo 3, he said, I took the character back to the basics. I took him back to what he really was for this movie. And so Morrell was very generous. And he said, you know, I was glad to see that he had, uh, you know, gotten back to that place and figured out that Rambo 3 wasn't what the character was about sort of thing. And in terms of the the authenticity, what's really difficult is the fact that the, the movie is still relevant about this area of the world. Very relevant, mm-hmm. like disturbingly relevant. And even though Rambo verges on a sort of grindhouse mentality in terms of its brutality and gore and and just the graphic nature of what it shows there there's this is almost like that midnight movie crazy monster movie that you go to see where the the violence is so over the top that the audience is almost watching it for the cringe factor of how much can you withstand to watch mm-hmm. it's still this is no bone tomahawk but you know uh, God, yeah no yeah, thank you for putting that image back in my head. Um, great <laughs> film, though. Recommend it, everybody. But um, the thing is, it's couched in this. It feels so necessary what's being told. And what's rough about watching it this time is sitting there in the back of my head saying, this is still relevant. And how long ago did this movie come out? And it, it winds up. I, I really think this winds up watching it again delivering what i think is one of its core messages which is we are awfully choosy about the outrages that we have a problem with and Mm -hmm. rambo is i think so justifiably cynical about things because when they come to him for help and he says you're not going to change anything what what are you you even doing no turn around go home you don't want to do this and it's like Mm -hmm. You don't want to be on Rambo's side, but how can you not, when you watch all of these things, think to yourself, why would you go over there? Like, you you can cry, you can feel terrible about it, but you don't stand a chance of changing it. So why, like, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I know I'm sort of rambling, but it's just, it's it's such an emotionally draining experience to think that this is all while it's a, a fictional story, that this is basically all true. That's just such a gut-wrenching thing to go through. Yeah, I, I think that it's a good thing that you said that because that's definitely the thing I think they preach the most in this movie through what they're showing you is that you have Rambo on the side of how can just one person or even a group of five or six people come in and make a difference with something that they're saying has gone on for 60 years? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And yet you still also, just because I think that we always, as a human race, cling to some kind of hope that, you know, something is worth it, um, that we think like that woman, you know, who's saying, if if it's not me, then who? 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, um, I do love the quote that she says that, you know, it's like, is it's not wasting your life to save a life. Mm-hmm. But, but I also see his point of, are you really expecting you're going to be able to save anyone? Yeah. Yeah. And like, you don't really understand all the, the depth of what you're going into. I, I mean, I absolutely think that, that, you know, that that's something that's really important. And John, I think you picked up on one of the g- great themes of this, which is you're we're absolutely living through a world right now where people are completely choosing to what they get outraged about, what they don't get outraged about. And the fact that these type of things are literally happening in countries, things like this, exactly like this and or akin to this. And we just turn a blind eye to um. Mm-hmm. I'll let you go search on the internet. I'm not going to get too super political, but it's happening and sure. and people aren't getting upset about it. Um, and it's because it, it quote unquote doesn't have anything to do with us. It doesn't impact us. Right. Um, it, and, and so that we just turn a blind eye to, and, and I absolutely think um, that this movie uh, is to be praised for that. Um, you know, and I would, I think maybe it's a good idea to, to maybe at this point to talk a little bit about the violence because I think it kind of fits in with what we're talking about. I think to me, the violence is legitimized because this is the type of terrible thing that's happening across the world and we don't see the repercussions of it. And this showing us what it looks like to have somebody get blown up by a landmine or to be, uh, you know, horribly mistreated. I mean, we talk about like, wanting mm-hmm. to take care of women and everything, the mistreatment of women that we see in this or, or young children that we see in this, like just the dehumanization and, and uh, treating people like animals. Um, we, this is the kind of thing that's, that's happening. And I think that the violence and the, the situations to which this movie puts the characters in is all too real and too much of the world that we want to turn a blind eye to. And so I can't say that the violence is really over the top because when you blow somebody up, that's what it looks like. It it's not a pretty sight, you know. <laughs> yeah, and there. Yeah. The, the thing is, there's a real difference, and I, I think that sometimes what happens is people, uh, when they want to criticize something that's violent like this, they look past how it's being done, why it's being done, the context in which it's being told. And they wind up conflating glorification with reality, right? You can go to any number of outlets and see realistic looking violence in a horror movie. Tom Savini built a whole career out of making the most realistic beheadings you could possibly see. And the the horror movies of the 80s were in an endless game of one-upmanship to see what they could tear out of a human body in a creative way while somebody delivered some sort of awful one-liner or something like that. Whereas this, if you're going to drive home the point of how barbarically awful the bad guys, quote unquote, and I'm not saying quote unquote, cause they're not bad guys or that I'm saying, Oh, they're, I'm saying quote unquote, because that's just, it, it's such a, it's a term that feels like it's dismissive. And I, I, I just can't think the villains in this, how on earth are you going to convey how terrible they are without it feeling like some sort of glorification of the violence 
akin to you watch something like Rambo three and you can make an argument about glorifying violence. There's the big helicopters and the huge set pieces and things flying everywhere. And he blows a guy up with an arrow and all of these sorts of things. Whereas with this, it's this visceral, real, horrific stuff that you're watching. And it's making a purposeful statement by showing it. And that I think is why the violence in this operates on a different level and why it's also so much more uncomfortable to watch than when I sit down and watch a slasher movie and, and say, Oh, that's gross. How did they do that? I watch this and I, I, again, I have that knowledge. I'm watching what it looks like when it really happens. And in my brain, I know it's a, a movie, but at the same time, I know that this is based on what's actually going to happen when somebody gets shot, when somebody blows up, when somebody gets run over anything. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think the violence in this is difficult, but justified. Yeah, I'm 100% with you as well. I, I think that um, it's something that needs to be in this so that they can show the realism of what is happening. Exactly like you said, John. Um, and, of course, it causes people to cringe um and because it's supposed to it's supposed to basically make a statement of there are things like this going on right now that you don't have any idea about and that something needs to be done about and i think it really you know it's supposed to awaken that care about humanitarian things and people that usually like you said matt like set it aside as it doesn't affect me i'm in a whole nother country i'm fine whatever um, and I get like, there's sadly so much of this that it's like, you have to pick which one that you care most about, but, um, acting like it's not happening doesn't make it any better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, if, if I can interject too, I think that on top of that, on top of what you're saying is the fact that the villain is not a mustache twirling bad guy. He's an extremely believable villain because he has an yeah. economy of dialogue and expression that is very real. He's not having exchanges with Rambo like, you know, what are you? I'm your worst nightmare. There's nothing like that. This is just yeah. a completely believable, real, horrifically bad person. And and the people that follow his orders, which is, you know, that, that even gets into a whole different, uh, different sort of discussion, but it's really, really fascinating. Yeah. I think I, I appreciate what both of you guys are saying here too. And John, I think you nailed something in, in that sense where, you know, the villain feels very real to this you know, the type of person who does these type of things. And and we know that to be the case, like, historically and now, like, that these are these type of people who they believe themselves to be able to get away with this because nobody's going to stop them. Um, And, you know, that's one of the things that I think, you know, we touched on a little bit earlier, but it makes Rambo's journey very interesting here because I think... Three gets used here to the best of its ability in the sense that we we kind of uh, do we does Rambo accept who he is, which is somebody who is good at killing people uh, and hunting people down 
that have done wrong uh, and using that to save somebody. And and does his life look like, does he live for nothing or does he die for something? Um, or does he just live for nothing and just say, F the world? Like he tells, you know, uh, Sarah at the beginning. And I think that that is a really interesting thing, which is Rambo f- has lived in an an entire life where he's known nothing but war and violence and bloodshed for so long he can see no hope that any of this will make a difference in the end so why care other than just try to live your life and just like you know make it through you know till you die and I do really kind of love that it is Sarah challenging him with saying it you know trying to save a life isn't wasting your life is it and that really brings him alive because he realizes he, I, I, I could make a difference. You know, I could have an impact by, by putting an end to, you know, using the skills that I've been given, you know, quote unquote, to, to make a difference by putting down people who, who would treat others like this. And um, I think that that is, is fascinating because you know, it really does deal with that classic theme. And I think what we were talking about earlier with the, the, the kind of even political ramifications this movie still has, which are, are we going to turn a blind eye and do nothing? Or are we going to recognize that things are happening and actually do something? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think that it's also useful that they show, they demonstrate very clearly that Rambo is still suffering the, you know, the PTSD, the shell shock of everything that he's been through. Uh, that dream sequence is very well done because it's presented as that torturous nightmare, but it still gives us those moments that we recognize of Troutman talking to him and his younger days. Uh, so, it, you know, it roots us back in the, the previous stories and while at the same time, you know, giving him that, uh, that, that sort of, you know, trauma, but you know the thing the thing that i struggle with with this movie and i i think it's because it's the question it's it's not that i'm struggling with the point it's that i'm i find myself so much watching this and it's hard to come away with the idea that uh they were right to ignore rambo in the beginning right because it is one of those things where Yes, the, the, you know, the point of it's not wasting a life to save a life. But at the same time, recognizing that you have to be comfortable that in order for those situations to resolve themselves, you do need to send in the mercenaries. You do need to send in somebody like Rambo uh, to borrow a line from one of the other characters in the movie. You have to send in the devil to do God's work. And... It, that's an uncomfortable statement and people don't want to think of, well, we have to have an army of people who, if they weren't in the military, would most likely cause a lot of problems at home. You know, like it, people, I think in general, aren't comfortable with that idea, but it it really is the truth that this group of people are not pleasant people they're not happy people it's not like they are doing this because they enjoy it they're doing it because it's the only thing that can sort of like quiet the voices for them i guess right although some of them are in it because of 
you know, money. But like, I think that it's also a strong suit of this movie that instead of having Rambo be alone, that we have this other cast of characters, the mercenaries, to illustrate who Rambo is, really. That he's not your typical guy who's dealing with this. That he really is thoughtful in trying to find peace. He's not a mercenary. He could have very easily been one of these mercenaries. And so contrasting him with them, I think, is a really strong move on the part of the script to set up uh, further illustrating Rambo's character and also making what happens later in the film a lot more believable than him and Troutman taking on the entire Russian military in the desert of Afghanistan. (laughs) You know, like there's, there's a much, it's just, it's a really, really well handled matter in the script basically. Yeah. It's like they took note of that and uh, possibly negative feedback from it and said, okay, this time we're going to show a more realistic view of that kind of sequence where he's got help. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Um, But it does really do a great job, even though there's no dialogue in that scene where they've finally killed all the quote unquote bad guys. um, And, you know, Sarah is walking down to try and find her fiance. It's Rambo just observing. And I think he's feeling that quiet sense of a little bit of peace that he's saying, look at all of these people that whose lives I've saved Mm-hmm. because of what I did here today. And that he's realizing he is living for something and he doesn't just have to survive that he could do something like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I did really like that. Yeah. Yeah. I do think um, I, I like really the, the fact like you guys are saying that we, we have him be with other people. And like you said, the juxtaposition, John, between him and the mercenaries and the fact that he has not become that type of person, you know, who's using his skills just to make money. Um, he's He really truly is that guy who's trying to live his life away from all this. He's, he is kind of trying to find some kind of peace in his life, you know, and he is unable to because like you said, they they do a great job on it. The best montage sequences in any uh, of the, you know, movies that Stallone has done where you have this character who is truly plagued by the life that he um, has been a part of, you know, and Mm -hmm. then I I think it does give him a sense of, and there is a sense of righteousness when he comes out to save Sarah. Sarah when he comes out to save the rest of them, right? Um, because he is doing it for the for the one person who decided to treat him like a human being for mm-hmm. the first time in a long time. And, mm-hmm. and to see that he could do something about it, right? And he knows he has the ability to do something about it. And therefore, he is not going to turn his back on that now. And I think that kind of plays in the entire theme of the movie is like, Will we just continue to turn our backs on things that we see and we know that we have the power to make a change for, or will we actually do something? And what makes it interesting, John, like you said, where you got this character, right, um, who is joined by these other characters, and it almost feels like this is the original Bad Batch, 
Ah, yeah. <laughs> Original Bad Batch or Wild Bunch or yeah. Uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. um, it, it's it it really is something where I think that the simplicity of the movie is deceptive uh, because it's really easy to come at this and just just sort of brush it aside and say, oh well, this is just a very basic sort of movie, but it really is examining a lot of things very, uh, you know, very deftly, very subtly. And one of the things I think is really interesting as well, because, you know, we were talking about, you know, starting the reboot trend and, you know, or being part of the first wave of it, at least. Um, with this movie, it's, it, we've made reference to Rambo 3. It's interesting that, this is one of those sequels where basically the one that the one beforehand doesn't really need to exist if you didn't like it. You know, they they do a very good job I think of of wiping it clean and just you could literally pick up from the end of First Blood Part 2 him walking off into the jungle and jump to this and this basically becomes Rambo 3. And um yeah. I think that's a really really deft thing, especially because I think it, it works as such an interesting, um, re, uh, it, it's not a, you know, that one is all about going in for the POWs, which is a, you know, a forgotten thing in the jungle. And then this is about going in for innocent people who are caught in the crossfire sort of thing. But it really is as if this is a modernized take on, first blood part two and what i find interesting while we're talking about the you know the mercenary band that's with him is in first blood part two the two mercenaries essentially that he runs across are gigantic d-bags and their arms uh, you know that they're taking the orders of a, a horrible bureaucrat and all of those sorts of things and it would have been so easy to go down that road with these mercenaries and instead they wind up being decent guys, not nice guys, but they're decent enough people that they might be doing a mercenary's job, but you don't get the sense that they would allow the Bur- you know, the Burmese military to hire them out to go do something. They're still going to do things that, that are quasi virtuous that just, you know, governments don't want to get involved in. So I think the movie really should be applauded for the fact that we have all of those sorts of things carrying over. And instead of having the very, very anticipated trope of, you know, the, the lead, the, the main mercenary guy, the British guy, you know, the former SAS. Oh, he winds up betraying Rambo and they take the boat and they're gone sort of, but instead it turns into, just you know everybody is just doing the best job that they can and so nobody winds up you know uh, turning heel uh in the course of the movie yeah i like that you made that point as well john because i think that you definitely need to see how they're showing that these guys they do have some kind of moral code, even though they are mercenaries Mm -hmm. that, you know, you see that when they're in the camp trying to rescue the people, a, they were willing to put their own lives at risk and go in to do this in the first place. Um, B that they're trying to get out women and, you know, other people aside from the, you know, missionaries they went in to get. Um, 
and that then, you know, a couple of them decide that they're going to go ahead and follow the leader's orders to leave without Rambo and the other sniper and Sarah and the sniper stays Mm -hmm. and ends up being essential to getting Rambo and Sarah out. And I like that he and Rambo have that moment of why did you stay? Why did you, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's saying something about each of them that they have in common. That's, you know, a virtue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I end up liking that as well. You know, obviously these are hard men, men that, you know, they do a dirty job for a living, you know, and, and, you know, you have Graham McTavish's Lewis talking about, you know, the, the you send the devil in to do God's work, right? Um, and so he they, they realize, you know, exactly um, what they do. But they, they seem to pick jobs that are legitimate in the sense of, like, they're not just killing anyone, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this job they've been hired to do is, to, you know, to save a group of missionaries from an evil warlord. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, uh, I think there's something really interesting in that. Um, I also just think, you know, thinking on who they're going to save, it is interesting to me that what we see is the only people who do care about these people are missionaries, you know, who are going in to give in, you know, give medical care. They're, they're going to, um, do what they can to make these people's lives better, you know? And, and I think that's something that people don't see, but happens again. This is something that happens all over the world every single day, you know, Mm -hmm. that people like that are working to take care of those who can't take care of themselves, uh, in that way all over the world. And, uh, I think there's something, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's, it's a strange juxtaposition then between the mercenaries and the missionaries, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the reasons that they're, they're, they're doing things and yet they're doing good things, but for completely different reasons, you know? Well, I think it's also interesting because you have these, these different sets of loyalties, right? Wham- Rambo at the beginning of the film has loyalty only to himself. Uh, well, although, right. you know, he's still doing nice things. He's catching fish and giving them away to people. He has a crew that he obviously treats well. Um, mm-hmm. and in, in terms of the, the loyalties, one of the things that I always hit on with any sort of story, real life or a movie like this or what have you, is the fact that the band of people following the warlord all have the ability not to. All have the ability to kill him. All have the freedom to make that choice. There are more of them than there are of the warlord and trying to examine why anybody stays loyal to a madman is one of those fascinating things throughout history of, you know, it, my, my father was right. always a fan of saying you don't need a hundred percent of the population to support a madman. You just need 10% and they just need to be brutal about it. And it's like, that's sort of on display yeah. here because they're taking children and turning them into soldiers. And then you see what they turn into when they have that giant rave, that giant awful, awful thing going on. Um, and it's, 
it's just interesting because the mercenaries don't have any loyalty per se, but they're at least able to function as a social group and understand each other's importance and place in it. And so I just think it's a really, really interesting sort of uh, examination of these different loyalties in in groups mm-hmm. and those groups set against each other. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a illustration of sociology. You know, yeah. I, I remember initially in college learning about groupthink and how that's the thing that's behind these mobs that just behave totally differently than when you're just a few individuals and you think individually. Um, and that, you know, it's it's exactly what you're saying, that you only need 10%, but when they're passionate enough about it and they're, you know, willing to go through with things, then they're the part that's always going to continue to win. Um, and it's unfortunate because, like you said, the numbers are actually in their favor of throwing the guy over. But I, I wonder, too, if part of that rationale to someone in that situation is that, okay, even if I do want to overthrow him, how do I know that everyone is going to go along with that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it's kind of the them or me situation. Mm-hmm. Well, and a, a big part of it is, you know, these these men are getting something out of it too, right? Mm-hmm. They're the ones who get to be yeah. in power, right? And and so I think that's that's the other thing. Like you said, John, you have to have those people who are willing to follow you and then they are brutal about it. And they have that same mentality. You know, you, you released the Kraken <laughs> in mm. them that completely dominates their destiny. You know, it, it's like what Yoda says about the dark side, right? You know, once you go down the dark path forever will dominate your destiny and so you know you take these young boys and you train them to become this thing and you let them run loose with their wildest inhibitions completely uninhibited and they're able to do whatever they want satisfy themselves in any way possible and you know you you turn them into this you know and and all while under you know the the leadership of of like you said like a madman and so i think uh, that's something that is really done well in this movie. Um, so, and again, it's it's another one of those places where this movie is excelling in a way that many of the other movies hadn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and and probably excels, I would say, um, as as good as the first one in some ways. You know, like this may be thematically one of the best Rambo movies since the first one, just because we're really dealing with some serious issues here in a very straight laced way. You know, we're, we're not trying to make it just bigger and more ridiculous for the heck of it. You know, um, I think it, this movie for all of its violence is trying to show just what is, Mm -hmm. um, I do have one question for you guys because I was really interested. I didn't realize there is an extended cut of this movie. That is nine extra minutes. And I wondered just if either of you had seen that extended cut and um, what you, if you had what you thought of it. I No, I haven't. I was familiar with scenes that were cut. I don't, and this is going to sound terrible, I own it. I don't think I, the version I own is the extended version. Um, but uh, no, I, 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 
I want to say I've seen the cut scenes, but I haven't seen an extended version. I know there's an extended version of the next one uh, that I haven't watched yet. Uh, but Yeah, it, I've heard that too. Yeah, no, there definitely is. Uh, for Last Blood, there is an extended cut that puts in something like, I, I want to say it's something crazy, like 15 more minutes or something. Um, oh, wow. I yeah. guess maybe we'll have to cover that then. Uh, well, I, I have seen the original. Anyway, that that's for the next time. Um, <laughs> all, all that rambling to say, I, I'm, I don't think I've seen the extended cut. And when I saw the scenes, it was okay. so many years ago that uh, I don't recall them. So I, I think there's an extra scene uh, where she goes back to, like it takes a little bit longer to get him to go down the river or something or up the river in that case, I guess. I, I want to say that's part of the extended stuff. Um, because that's really the one part of the movie where I think the mechanics of it are very mm-hmm. clunky is in the beginning. And I don't mm-hmm. know if it's clunky because we know he's going to go. We know he, we know where this has to eventually go. And so there, Stallone is trying to put in a sense of doubt about it. And, but then he knows that we're aware that, He's he's fibbing through that, and so there's there's almost this odd sense of non-committal about whether we're supposed mm-hmm. to doubt that he's going to actually do it, or let's put our foot on the gas and just get there as quick as we can. And so I think it adds a sort of like odd uh, staccato rhythm, uh, you know, to like the first twenty minutes of the movie. Yeah, it definitely does feel weird that because like it did stand out to me for example um he and sarah constantly looking at each other Mm -hmm. during the cobra fights um i'm just like are they trying to say that she's got something up her sleeve it was just weird weirdly put together um but yeah i do agree that it's it's kind of that knowing thing of like when you know that someone's the hero they're not going to die it's that same Mm -hmm. kind of thing like you know that this movie is called rambo and that the formula has become that some people go in somewhere they shouldn't and he has to go in and save them Mm -hmm. you -hmm. already know he's going to do it yeah yeah from what i was reading is the extended cut kind of just adds more of those scenes they kind of prolong um some of those scenes for them together kind of give a little bit more of what you were talking about, John, where, you know, you, you kind of give more, trying to give more motivation to Rambo and the relationship between him and Sarah and, and kind of like they also try to do it said um, kind of try and make, uh, you know, her fiance come off a little less grumpy, uh, you know, maybe in a slightly better light too, uh, with with the de- deleted scenes that they had as well. Um, so, you know, I think all of that, you know. I think you're right. If there's anything I would have loved in this movie was just to have had a little bit more time to breathe um, in a, a few of those type of scenes to help us get to that point where we're going to jump into, you know, everything that we know is going to happen. Uh, and so... Sorry, I just had a question, too. It didn't. Did either of you notice that Michael was supposed to be Sarah's fiancé? Because I didn't know until I was reading on Wikipedia... Yeah, same here. I just thought they were married, honestly. I picked up they I thought were, they were all just on a trip together. <laughs> yeah, I, I I picked up that they were at least in a relationship and uh he 
he was getting maybe a little jealous of Rambo because she was making an effort to engage Rambo. Mm-hmm. But um, it, 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 yeah, I, I didn't get specifically fiance the first time I watched it. And then somewhere along the way, I, either somebody says the word like in an offhand way. I think at the end she says uh, her, he, she calls him her fiance. I think there's like, but but it's just a passing reference or something. Uh, but yeah, that, I mean, I know that the first time I watched it, I wasn't really picking up on them being engaged. Yeah, I just I just think they could have shown it by them holding hands and showing they're wearing rings, something like that at least. Well, you know, I thought what a, a nice touch actually was the fact that um, their clothes were so nice compared to everybody else's. And I think that mm-hmm. really did a very good job of visually enforcing that they didn't understand the situation they were going into. They looked like tourists as opposed to people yeah. who lived there. Whereas if you saw Rambo walking around, you would say, oh, well, you know, that's a Caucasian guy, but he's dressed. Okay. But he's part of this life, right? He looks like he belongs. Whereas they walk in and you're like, why are they here? Because their clothes are all nicer and they're, you know, they're, they're designer labels and stuff like that. And it's like, I I think that uh, the costuming and I, I think that in general, costuming doesn't get enough credit when it's done well. And I think that the costuming in this does a really good job of communicating them being fish out of water going into a situation they don't quite comprehend. Yeah. Like even down to their shoes, I think they show that they're wearing either like nice hiking boots Mm -hmm. or maybe even Chacos. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, and it's interesting too, because I think one of the things that they do as well is that it just kind of shows that they're not prepared to deal with what they're going to face there. And you got the feeling like that they've done this before in different areas, but they haven't ever been anywhere this bad. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so they think that they understand what they're getting into, but they truly don't. You know, and I, I think that really works. And part of that is, you know, we don't have a a, ma- a massive cast of well knowns here. You know, uh, but I think all the casting works pretty well for the most part to uh, do a good job. You know, I, Julie Benz, I think, is doing a great job of doing everything she can to give dimension to this role. Um, And then everybody else from, you know, the rest of the missionaries to our mercenaries, you know, Graham McTavish's Lewis is the only one who kind of really super stands out because he speaks the most. But I think everybody else is, is good. And if there's anything I could say is I almost wish as we had just spent a a little bit more time there too with the mercenaries. So we could give them a little bit more time to be, a little have a little more character development so then we kind of care more about them but even though we don't spend a ton of time with them you know when some of them die i'm like oh i kind of like that dude even for just the way the actor portrayed just a few lines Mm -hmm. yeah and i i think that um it's also an accomplishment because like you said with a few lines a lot of that goes into that it's the actor uh being able to communicate non-verbally but it's also the camera work in this, I think, is really good and really well suited because it takes on there. It, it has that purposeful lack of polish, and that's for lack of a better term. But it has that 
that rough handheld quality to it that I think lends a lot of the realistic feel to this story, as opposed to if you go and you contrast that with even first blood, it's a lot of locked camera shots and some very, you know, very staged scenes. And then first blood part two has, you know, I I mean, it's very produced look, whereas this has a much more rough, you know, in the, in the mix of things look. And so, the editing then comes into play to show reactions at the right time and give guys that face time so that you can see them roll their eyes or go to, you know, or nod off and be like, I don't want to listen to this. And, or even the way the camera plays when Rambo is staring at Lewis's character and they have that, that nonverbal standoff is even it's positioned in such a way and cut in such a way that it has that very, loose handheld feel to it and i think stallone deserves deserves a lot of credit for recognizing that times have changed and he's not trying to make an 80s action movie with this he's recognizing i have to make a movie that speaks the current visual language for people to plug into it otherwise it is going to feel like a relic and so i think that that shows a lot of wisdom as a director to put those pieces in in play so that everything works the way it needs to. 100%. Yeah. I think that so much of this movie is purely visual. Um, And I mean, you know, like we were saying at the end when Stallone is looking out across, you know, all of the people that who are still alive because of what he was able to do. Um, and showing even, you know, that Sarah is running through the village as these bombs are going off and mines are exploding and the army is coming and coming. Um, she's realizing what they've gotten into. Um, and then it, I was going to add as well, I think that another big piece that we didn't talk about yet was um, her fiance, Michael, the juxtaposition of him going into it and then him at the end where he originally said, I'm going to have to report this because killing someone is never okay. And then he gets to a point where he has to kill someone. Right. Right. And it's saying like, you had no idea. Like you may feel that way now, but it might be different when you have someone coming after your life. Yep. Absolutely. Excellent point. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, I really appreciate you bringing that up, Kristen, because it was something that I was thinking about in the film as to how there is a certain type of evil that can only be responded to by killing it. Mm-hmm. You know, there there isn't a way to rationalize with it. There isn't a way to talk with somebody about it, uh, talk them out of it. Like, it has to be confronted this way, you know? And I think... You know, one of the things that this movie does a great job of, we talked about before, is that it makes that point by showing us the atrocities that are happening in the same way that, you know, we at the end of World War II saw atrocities that were happening. Uh, You know, I think the way that we see um, when when things come to light, like the genocide in Rwanda, Mm -hmm. you know, when those atrocities came to light. um. I, I think this is important for us to be able to understand the reality of the type of evil that we're talking about. 
And this does a great job of, of actually letting us visualize it in a very disturbing way. Well, I think also in a very cathartic way, because you watch these atrocities happen and then you see the, the villains, the soldiers that are responsible for it, getting their comeuppance at the end. And it's cathartic because that's how you want it to work. And then you, you realize the nobility, the extreme. I mean, it, it's, it's very, very difficult to sort of wrap your head around the idea that there are people who commit atrocities like this and then the effort is made to bring them to trial because it's more important to have that due process than the rush to judgment no matter what. But there is that very real, very human part of us. Would we have wanted to see the madman go on trial in this at the end of this movie? Would we have want to see yeah. him taken away in zip ties and then he goes off to trial where they'll send him to prison for 25 years to, to ponder what he's done sort of thing? Or do you look at it and you say, this, there's no other way to deal with this person. You, you got to wipe him out. There's no hope for him. And that, I think, is the real tension that also plays there between the, the, the missionaries and Rambo is... Rambo knows at the beginning, the only way to end this is to end this. Whereas the missionaries are still going in. If I go and I put some kindness into the world, then even the black hearted will be able to see that kindness and I will, I will redeem it. And Rambo's the one standing there saying, no, no, not, that's not the way it works. And it's in a sense, it's an odd feeling at the end of the movie because you're so accustomed to the point being that the missionaries were right, that you had to put down the weapon and there was no other way. Whereas this entire work is about, no, this is the only way the missionaries. And this, this is a juxtaposition of what we're used to seeing. The missionaries come to the realization of, Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I guess sometimes you got to blow people up to get, to get the job done. Like, think about that. Like, that is such a complete flip. And then it flips again because they have unintentionally set Rambo down a path where he's going to go home to see if his dad's still alive down in Arizona. And he walks back home. Finally, he finally gets mm -hmm. back home at the end of this. And so it's weird because it really resolves in a way that doesn't give anybody what they expect or want while at the same time fulfilling what we think certain characters deserve. Like, I think it's such a weird, like, spaghetti of an ending where it's all mixed together and you're still, you're like, the strands are all just there. And it's like, you just have to take it all in. You can't. You can't sit there and pull it all apart one piece at a time. It's really, I think, a challenging movie at the end as a result. I like that a lot, that we end with the movie where, and and it it's one of those things where it makes it really interesting, uh, the, the fact that this movie could have ended with uh, never having another Rambo movie again. Mm -hmm. Just because of it's so beautiful of him walking home, you know, and, and, and 
Mm-hmm. So I can't think of a, a more perfect way then to get to us talking about some ratings here then for well it's just called rainbow uh so i have to say as disturbing as it is and we all talked about i think that ultimately it has something to say that's important and i will add too that it's something that has always spoken to me and is why I actually ended up working in nonprofit because I started out as a volunteer helping organizations that do humanitarian aid. Um, and, you know, I, I've always said if money was no object, I would be giving clean water to people in other countries, but that's a problem. And then also I uh, am too vulnerable to sickness. <laughs> I can't help anyone else like that. Um, so I, I, I like having these kind of things brought to light so that other people can have that same life-changing moment of it, like, wow, there's so much more that I don't know that's going on around me. Um, and so I think that it does need that level of um, disturbing factor because it's trying to show you the extent of things that you don't know are going on. Um, and that ultimately I think it's a compact story that does a good job. Um, so I give it a five out of five. Mm. Um, wow. Because I really, I can't find anything wrong with it. I mean, you know, like it, it, I think people's number one thing would be saying that they felt like it was too violent, but it's intended to be. Wow. Wow. Five out of five. Cool. Cool. I, I don't wind up at a five. Because I'm Mr. Nitpicker about my process problems. Uh, it mm-hmm. drives Matt up a wall. Anybody that's listened to us. Uh, Sometimes, over, yes. Uh, it, it does. It, it, it absolutely does. Rogue One has those problems. And I think that Rambo has a couple of those issues. <laughs> um, but I, it's a solid four out of five. And every time I watch it, when I'm going through the violent parts, I'm thinking to myself, oh, gosh, there's no way this is, oh, this is so terrible. But then I come to that point at the end every time where I, I say, oh, wow, this really is kind of challenging and really throwing it in my face. And it does have things to say. But the thing is, it's it has things to say in the way that I think films should. It's not telling me what to think it's throwing it out there and saying well what do you think and so i think there's also an interesting aspect to this that i don't like and i'm i'm saying this you know sort of like for dramatic effect but i don't like what this movie tells me about what i think about how certain things should be handled and it's like it's one of those things so i Every time I've watched this, there's like a couple of days where I'm very deep in thought, thinking to myself, "Yeah, do, wait, did I? Mm, do I really think that? Do I want to admit that I think that?" Um, and so I think it's a challenging, good entry, and I think that uh, in terms of sequels, it's especially successful because I don't think you need to watch another Rambo movie to come into it which I think is really the mark of a strong sequel that somebody could come into this and watch it modern day and they don't need to have seen the first two or three movies. They can just come in and get everything that's going on without the, uh, the primer. And I think that is a truly successful sequel. So solid four out of five for me. 
It's so interesting that you said that, John, uh, about, you know, not having to see a Rambo movie. This is the only one I had ever seen before coming into the series. And then I didn't like it at all. It didn't work for me. It didn't make sense to me. And I just, I didn't respond at all to just the whole flow of it and just the feel of it and all the violence and everything. I just wasn't in a place to, I think, have any thought process like we've had here. And, you know, I would say this time it's completely different. Obviously, having all the contextual history now of watching all of these films can make a big difference. You know, um, you, we had that discussion on Snyder Cuts, obviously, many times, John, where going through that process, you know, and you were open-minded, and I came into this one completely open-minded. Okay, what are you going to give me? And this movie, uh, even through talking about it tonight, it went up a whole half star, Uh so I'm going to be at a four out of five as well, because I think that this is the best Rambo sequel. And I think uh, I would say you don't need any more Rambo movies after this, you know. So uh, Last oh. Blood is going to be fascinating to see um, <laughs> because this is such a a phenomenal end to the series. Um, and it is interesting because this comes out at the same time that Rocky Balboa does very close together. And Rocky Balboa also does a great job of wrapping up that saga for that character as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you never saw that character again, you felt legitimized, you know, um, with the journey. And here, this one leaves you feeling like the journey has come to a wonderful conclusion and almost like the happiest conclusion you could get for this character, you know, going home. Yeah. Um, and so again, neck, it'll be so fascinating to see what happens when we get to last blood. And, and because I legitimately, I haven't seen it and I have no idea really what the story is. I, all I know is remembering that the reviews came out for it and they weren't stellar. So I'm really looking forward to you seeing last blood because I have seen last blood. And I think that you will very much come back to the comment this would have been a perfect ending for the series. So we'll just leave it at that. I don't want to poison the well. I haven't seen it yet either. So, well, I, oh, I know, I know it, it, it is, it's an editorial you where it's like anybody who hasn't seen it, I'm especially at this point going to be really curious to see. I, I will, I will say this going into it, as it's still available on Prime, uh, Amazon Prime, to my knowledge, I would encourage you to make the extended cut your first watch because I'm going to make that my second watch based on my first watch. So I'll just go ahead and leave it there. So Good okay. to know. Yeah. Good to know. So, well, uh, it is that time for recommendations. And so, um, Christy, what do you want to recommend to everybody this week? So I'm actually going to go in a different direction. And um, it's funny because it's also considered violent content. Um, But another kind of funny thing I've realized and like we've talked about the the choices by my dad of things he let me watch way too young is hilarious. Um, I'm going to recommend Mortal Kombat 1995. Yes! Yes! Uh, Yes! Because... Oh my god! It just and I I played Mortal Kombat three after I went back and was looking through and trying to figure out what characters I remembered most, um, and this was my first real intro into like the 
female ninja-like characters that I liked and wanted to be like. Like, I was like, you mean I can whip people with my hair? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was great. Um, So, yeah, so I I loved playing the game, and I I loved that movie and the music still. When I hear that song, I'm like, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, if you're looking for just some fun, violent content, (laughs) Mortal Kombat. 1995 is good brilliant recommendation i saw that two times in the movie theater back in the 90s (laughs) like oh nice yeah Yeah. it's gotta be better than the new one when this came out though i was eight i know i i know i'm older than you are i know that no 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 i'm saying i saw that movie (laughs) when i was eight (laughs) yeah okay i can see that that's fine (laughs) nice you know everybody's got to learn how to deal with goro at some point um (laughs) My recommendation is, and and the thing is, Mortal Kombat, that puts us in a happier sort of place than Rambo, and I'm going to continue that streak. Uh, I was talking about Amazon Prime a second ago. Uh, I highly recommend, you can either just watch Miami Connection on its own, but I do recommend watching it as the Rift Tracks live version. Uh, Miami Connection is a movie that was, uh, it's it's an 80s low-budget uh, movie that has aspirations of being a uh, like a um, a martial arts movie. Uh, it's about a drug dealing ninja clan that comes <laughs> to Orlando from Miami <laughs> and living in the land of the mouse right now. It's very fun if you know your way around town, especially downtown. Orlando, you can go, oh, that's where they filmed that. Oh, I've been there. Oh, that's where I went and and had dinner the other day. Oh, that's the UCF campus, that sort of thing. It's really, it is a special, special experience. Uh, And it features a fictional band called Dragon Sound that has some of the most uniquely 80s music in history. So Miami Connection, either just watch the regular movie or go ahead and watch the Riff Tracks live version because especially after watching Rambo, you need something to take you to a happy place where you can laugh for a minute. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm actually going to recommend two things because I got to go to the theater recently and a couple things. One, John and I are going to be talking about on Snyder Cuts coming up. Uh, I got a good chance to go see it in the theater, uh, Army of the Dead, which it was great just to be back in the theater and to see uh, a Zack Snyder movie in the theater was really cool. And if it's it's playing in theaters for like one week, so if you get a chance to see it, worth seeing in the theater. It was it was you know an excellent experience in that sense. I'm not going to give away my thoughts of the movie, uh, but we'll be covering on Snyder cuts coming out um, in a couple of weeks uh, as it's then going to drop on on uh, Netflix. And so uh, and then I also went and saw a movie that you could see in the theater or you can see on uh, HBO Max. But I saw Those Who Wish Me Dead with Angelina Jolie. And uh, John, John Barenthal's in that movie, too, uh, which uh, I enjoyed that as well. Um, and so some great things that you can either see in the theater or you can see on streaming. Uh, and so I, I'd recommend seeing both of those. But, um, John, it's always great to have you back. And, uh, well, um, we're going to continue to pay you to come back because you'll be back for the next few weeks. We're going to go back to Batman. We're going to cover some Thrawn. Uh, so if anybody wants to catch up with you uh, and see what else you've got going on, where can they find you? Well, the trick is they're not actually paying me. They lock the door and I can't get out. 
Uh, you can find me as Kessel Junkie, sending out cries for help on your social network of choice. I highly recommend connecting over on Letterboxd because I have a lot of fun writing uh, pithy and sometimes snarky movie reviews. And I'm also well known for watching terrible movies on purpose. So go ahead and, and find me on Letterboxd. You can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network, regularly hosting a show called House Lights, where we look at the work of directors from beginning to finish. Uh, and, you know, we, we go through directors like Fincher and Cameron and Anderson and all, all of the uh, fun works uh, to go through from them. And you can find me uh, on another show called Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast, which is co-hosted by Matthew Rushing, uh, where we have a lot of fun. And as we're recording this, we recently posed ourselves the question, uh, if we were going to reboot and make a sequel to the Ewok Adventures from the 1980s, what would that movie look like? Uh, so, you know, go on over and check that out. So, uh, But Christy, where can people find you? Uh, well, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And then, of course, sometimes in the Babel Conference on Facebook. And aside from 602 Club, I do another show called Sabres and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network, uh, where I cover different topics that I don't usually get to cover um, with my friends Amanda and Teresa. So, for example, we are about to dive into how we got into our Marvel fandom in the first place. Mm. And have some fun things to reveal about our, you know, childhood and then recent stuff. Um, and, you know, we've talked about doing never-ending story, all kinds of interesting things. I've never seen Pan's Labyrinth was brought to my attention, so might need to talk about that. Mm. So I hope you'll check that out. Nice. Well, uh, you could find me here uh, all over the network, of course. Uh, I'm also doing... Uh, Larry Trex and The Orb with Chris Jones talking about uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine on The Orb and Larry Trex is about the books and the comics of Star Trek all over social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two. You can find me. And on the Nerd Party, finished Owl Post with Drea Kaufman where we talked about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. So check that out. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Mm-hmm.